What's up, family? It's your boy, Daniel James II, and I'm your host right here on Black Voices on the Hill. Black Voices on the Hill is a podcast and radio show for the culture. We center Black lives, amplify Black stories, and enhance the Black experience at Cornell University, Greater Ithaca, and beyond. Black Voices on the Hill topics range from racism, police brutality, colorism, sexism, to Greek life, leadership, and white elitism in the Ivy League. Black Voice on the Hill envisions a Cornell that's sensitive to the plight of its Black students, aware of the Black excellence in its college town, and unabashed about them changing the world. We see Black excellence at Cornell. We believe in Black empowerment, and we love the Black experience. Listen, Black Voices on the Hill is brought to you by WVBR News. To see when more new and upcoming episodes and for other Cornell and Ithaca news, be sure to follow us at Black Voice on the Hill. Follow us at WVBR FM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Visit us at our website, wvbr.com slash blackvoice. Subscribe. Leave us a rating and review on Apple, Google, Overcast, and tune in right here on WVBR 93.5 every Friday at 2 p.m. And the episode releases the following Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Listen, y'all, I have a very special guest in the studio today. Uh, I uh, just want to let you all know he is a professor uh, at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT Austin, founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy, I believe, at Tufts University. He's also the author of Soakley, A Life and the Sword and the Shield, uh, a book about the revolutionary lives of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And he also serves as associate dean for justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. It's a mouthful, y'all, but he's just... He's that man. Uh, you all also probably know him um, from being a frequent commentator on race relations with CNN's Don Lemon. I have none other than the one and only Dr. Neil uh, Emeas Joseph. Say hello to people, Dr. Joseph. Hey, <laughs> thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. Dr. Joseph, I first became aware of your work, I think, uh, during the pandemic, uh, as, with many people, I was also locked in the house. And so I turn on Netflix and I'm watching this documentary about uh, who killed Malcolm X. And uh, and of course, you were one of the historians that they had there. And to be on a project like that, I guess that you have to be sort of an expert on civil rights history, Black power studies, et cetera. And, and Malcolm, you have to love Malcolm probably too. Uh, tell us first just how you became maybe involved with that project, but I'm more interested in knowing when did you first sort of become, uh, when did you come to love the person and the work of Malcolm X? Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, no, Daniel, thank you for inviting me. You know, I I um, am a native New Yorker, you know, proud son of Haitian immigrants. And I was born, you know, in Manhattan, raised in my infancy and toddlerhood in Brooklyn okay. and, and in, and in um, you know, all the rest in Queens. And I think, um, you know, my mother, uh, who's you know 82 years young is is my biggest teacher uh, about Black history, and she was a hospital worker, 1199 SCIU Mount Sinai Hospital. So, you know, I I was on picket lines in in elementary school, and so I, I learned about Malcolm Martin, but also Haitian history, Toussaint Louverture, and and Dessalines, and you know all these great different you know Ida B. Wells. You know Angela Davis, these different great black women and men who who have led these struggles for dignity and citizenship, and and Malcolm is somebody who really stayed with me uh, in junior high and high school, seeing Eyes on the Prize and seeing different documentaries about him. This is before Spike Lee's 1992 film came out. I was in college by the time that came out, and so I always thought that Malcolm was an exceptional figure. Um, 
over time, I learned that Dr. King was too. So I came to King late um, because I had believed, and that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I believed in the in in what Malcolm would call the okie doke <laughs> about King as as soft and Malcolm as hard. And I wrote the Sword and the Shield because it was really based on my own revelations about this. And other people have written dual biographies. Uh, Louis Lomax wrote To Kill a Black Man in 1969 uh, about King and Malcolm. Obviously, Jane, the great James Cone at Union Theological Seminary has wrote, written a book, American Dream versus Nightmare, about Malcolm and Martin. And what I what I wanted to do was show more convergence than divergence. You know, the last major book on this was 30 years ago by James Cone. And so my argument is that, you know, Malcolm X uh, was interested in radical Black dignity, and we could talk about what that means, and King was interested in radical Black citizenship. And over time, they come to see that you need dignity and and citizenship. Right. You've already, you, you're running ahead of me, Dr. Joseph, because I'm about to get to that uh, rag, radical Black dignity, Black citizenship. I love that. And but before we get to that, I just want to ask you, like, sort of, you know, there's been um, many books and even shows about, you know, if if John F. Kennedy had lived or um, if RFK had become president, you know, sort of it's it's embedded in like our American imagination, like America would be probably farther along, we think, to yeah. race relations, all of that jazz, right? if these two, you know, white, fairly liberal, I guess, radical for their time, I don't know, uh, you know, if they had lived, but we know that much of what they accomplished was also at the, I would say the behest of the mothers and fathers of the movement, including mm -hmm. Malcolm and Martin. Yeah. And I'm more interested in what you think as a black academician and an expert on Malcolm and Martin's lives. What would America look like, in your opinion, if Malcolm or Martin had, or Malcolm and Martin, if they had lived? Oh, yeah. No, I think we, we would have been a more equitable society because I think that they were able to cultivate coalitions, both of them, that were local and national, that were domestic and international and global in scope. So I do think that you would have had, um, you know, uh, movements crested in ways when um, they were assassinated, it, 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 movements continued to build as well, right? So, and we can see that Black Lives Matter movement for Black Lives doesn't have just one leader. And it's really largely Black-led, um, Black women and Black feminist and, you know, Black, you know, Black queer uh, folks as well who are, who are leading that, um, as well as straight. So I think that the world would be a different place um, on some levels, I think that their lives would have always been in danger because the ability to build those coalitions made them a threat to the establishment. So, you know, a Martin Luther King Jr. and a Malcolm X would have always had their lives in danger. But I think if they had lived longer, um, more positive things would have occurred. Right. Yeah. You mentioned danger and it just makes me think about, you know, their lives. I think Malcolm, what was he, 40? Uh, Martin Luther King. Oh, both of them were 39. Both 39, both 39. Okay. So, you know, you were in a documentary about who killed Malcolm X, but, you know, much of America might ask because I was sort of, you know, raised, you know, as you talk about, you've already alluded to um, 
you know, and I had great teachers growing up, but I also had some that were a little ahistorical. You know, they sort of painted, like you said, Martin as very passive, sort of white man's best friend. Yeah. And then Mar- and then Malcolm, you know, as being rogue, radical, revolutionary, violent. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, so his life in many, in some people's eyes, didn't matter. Why does it matter who kills Malcolm X? Because, you know, that would be a question some people ask, not who killed him, but why? Why do you think it matters? I, I think I know. Oh, yeah, no. So it, it absolutely matters because I think that, um, and the who matters too, you know, in terms of whether it's the, yeah. it's not just the Nation of Islam, but it's, um, or rogue elements in the Nation of Islam, the Newark Mosque, but it's uh, the New York Police Department's Bureau of Special Services, uh, the Boss Eye Unit, it's the FBI. Um, people knew the assassination was going to happen. Agents and police officers were there. Uh, before the assassination even happened. So it's important for us to understand the way the state works, the way surveillance works, the way these structures and institutions of anti-Black racism and white supremacy work so we can combat them. You know, no, the why of the assassination is more, um, is equally important. The the why is that, you know, they're trying to assassinate Malcolm and and then Martin, you know, three years and, basically six weeks later, um, they're trying to assassinate Malcolm to prevent him from coalescing and becoming something bigger, right? So it's important to remember, like, so if somebody had taken out Barack Obama when Barack Obama was a senator, right? Mm -hmm. So just imagine, this is a horrible counterfactual, but it means he would have never become president. So if something happens to him in 2005, 2006, 2007, all that we saw afterwards where we said, hey, you got the first black family in there and you've got Michelle Obama as the first lady and him picking Eric Holder as attorney general and all these things that occurred during that eight years, right? You just never experience, right? So what what you're trying to do by by, um, assassinating Malcolm you don't know what he's going to become in 1966, 67, 68, 69, 70, just the short term, let alone 1980 and 85. And you circumvent that by assassinating him. And it's the same thing with Dr. King. Dr. King, neither of them survives the 1960s, right? So you don't know what they're going to become, but you do it. The why is to prevent it from being something that is um, unstoppable, you know? So good. Uh, sometimes that even thinking about that, that imagination, it almost, I don't know what the feeling I, I feel is almost, uh, it's like, it's like mourning for something you never experienced or mourning for a place you've never been. It's, it's kind of, it's weird, but to think that I was born and they'd already been, you know, deceased, what, 30 to some 30 to 40 years already is, is quite a lot to think about. And yet their impact is the same, I think, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let's get to it, because you talked about radical Black dignity and radical Black citizenship, well, Black citizenship. Um, best book, best book I read in 2021. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because I asked I asked you to come, but I really did. My mom's read it now. Uh, she actually has my copy because she kept it and wanted to read it and then bought me a copy off Amazon. So I made sure I had it today, uh, you know, and um, you talk about these ideas. I wanted to reference like on a specific page, if I can, you talk about in relation to Malcolm X, you say Malcolm X inherited the legacy of his parents 
Earl Little and Louise Norton Little, proud disciples of the legendary Jamaican organizer Marcus Garza. Malcolm grew up in a home that celebrated Black pride, boldly proclaimed Black dignity, and brandished political activism as practically a familial birthright. And then you talk about uh, Martin on page 80, and you say the world bolstered King's personal conviction that a movement for achieving Black citizenship could reshape not only American democracy, but human rights struggles. So you sort of juxtapose these uh, two ideals. I want to know, did you coin these ideas of radical, because it's the first time I ever heard it, radical Black dignity, um, Black citizenship. I think of Black dignity after reading this book as sort of self-worth and then Black citizenship as that self-worth being realized by the political socioeconomic landscape but that's just the way i think of it in my mind but how do you how did you come to conceptualize that and what does it mean what does yeah. it mean in relation to their lives what does it mean for us can you explain that yeah no dang yeah, yeah i i coined both of those terms it's really radical black dignity and radical black citizen radical okay I, what i wanted and i think part of being a student of of uh both malcolm and martin and the times uh, for so many decades, um, and and you know, um, a scholar is that um, you learn new things. That's one of the great things about it. So you learn, you know. So the way in which I thought about Malcolm and Martin at twenty is different from thirty and forty, and and I'm going to be fifty this year. So it's it's different, you know. And so um, what I think about radical black dignity is is twofold. I think Malcolm is saying that yes, it's internal, and black people don't need their humanity uh, to be um, legitimated or validated by uh, criminals, because Malcolm defines white supremacist and a white supremacy, white supremacist society as a criminal society. The reason why white folks, by and large, hate Malcolm X, detest Malcolm X, is that he accuses white America of a series of crimes against black humanity that he traces back to racial slavery, and he uses history as his methodological weapon. And that's why I say Malcolm is Black America's prosecuting attorney. Malcolm is not interested in playing the dozens with white folks or defending Black lives to white folks, not at all. Like he's saying what Black dignity is that we understand our own humanity and we're fighting against a sick society and a sick oppressor, right, to protect that humanity, right? So that's different. That's different from a notion of citizenship or even believing in the founding documents. That's different. So with Malcolm, Malcolm is saying the whole American enterprise is a lie. And the people that you're looking for support from are criminals. So you, you don't go to criminals and ask them for support. And the crime is anti-Black racism and the, the rape and the lynching and the murder and the molestation of black people in perpetuity, see? And that's why some black people, Daniel, are scared of Malcolm too, because he's doing what Toni Morrison calls uh, speaking um, unspoken, uh, unspeakable truths, right? That's what Malcolm is doing. So Malcolm is saying, and, and he's saying that King and the civil rights movement, mainstream movement are pretty sick too, because they love these criminals and are trying to rehabilitate these criminals, right? So that's that's hard stuff. That is very, very hard stuff, right? So, and that's why, again, Malcolm, uh, you know, 
it doesn't have a holiday named after him. You know, there's no there's no Malcolm X holiday. So, but but radical dignity is also something else. So it's coming from us. And he's saying our liberation is going to be found in the last place we care to look, our own Black and African traditions. But he's also saying it's the end of what he calls world white supremacy, because he's saying white supremacy, both in the United States and its imperialist context globally, prevents Black dignity, radical Black dignity from occurring intrinsically and extrinsically, because it, it's, it's trafficking in dialectical structures of misery and white supremacy. The dialectical structure, structures are this way. It's externalized through slave catchers and law enforcement and segregation, but then it's internalized because if you grow up in an anti-Black, anti-human world, of course, even if you're Black, there's gonna be some Black people who do what? They imbibe that anti-Black racism. And that's why what's so interesting about Malcolm X and the call and response with Black people, even though he's a Black Muslim, he's also raised in the Black church, is that he's constantly criticizing Black people, but they understand the criticism is based on love. He's saying, you love white people. You want to be like white people. You hate yourself because everything about you has been negated in this white supremacist society. You don't know who you are. You're African. You don't know about Black history. You don't know about your own value system because you were robbed of all of it. And that's why it's Malcolm who's saying that we are Black people. Malcolm, sometimes I have uh, students who ask me, well, what was Malcolm X's most biggest accomplishment? King did the voting rights and civil rights. What is Malcolm? Malcolm's biggest accomplishment is that he turned Negroes into Black people and you should all be thankful. That's all. That's his biggest accomplishment. You should be you should be thankful to this day in 2022 that you are no longer Negroes and colored people. That's Malcolm's accomplishment. OK, so there's no legislation. He, he burrowed deep into your soul and your psyche and gave you a reason to live. That's his accomplishment. Right. So you should be thanking him every single day. That's the accomplishment of Malcolm X. Right. And that's radical black dignity. Right. So that's really, really important. Uh, the radical black citizenship is, 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 you know, Dr. King is going to define citizenship, thankfully, as more than just the right to vote. He's going to define citizenship as, as decent housing, a guaranteed income, um, the end of violence and racial segregation. Uh, so he's going to define citizenship in a very expansive way that really goes beyond the contours of, of standard day-to-day -day American democracy. And you were talking earlier about the Kennedy brothers. They were not radicals. They were not radicals. Bobby Kennedy tried to become a progressive by the late 60s, but they weren't radicals. They were sort of neoliberals within the context of their times, right? And so when we think about radical Black citizenship, the reason why that's important is that it goes beyond just voting rights and it goes beyond uh, 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 just formal recognition of equality. For, for King, citizenship is healthcare, it's food justice, it's environmental justice because Black people are disproportionately uh, living in toxic waste areas. Our kids have disproportionate asthma then and now, lead poisoning, asbestos poisoning, the whole nine. And what I argue in The Sword and the Shield is they both come to see you need dignity and citizenship. So they start off as rivals uh, uh, who, who become um, um, uh, at times... Um, uh, uh, combatants verbally who become each other's alter egos, you know? So there's a competitive thing, but they come to see Malcolm, you see it in the ballad of the bullet speech, comes to see that you need citizenship and dignity. 
That's the whole thing. Because Malcolm's right that the first people who need to recognize our humanity is us. But if we live in a society, we also need that humanity protected. That's the whole thing. Because we live in a society. We're not on uh, our own island or, or our own continent away from these races, right? And King comes to see that you need dignity. King comes to say, he comes to start talking about black is beautiful. It's so beautiful to be black. He starts to come to say that they even tell us that a white lie is better than a black lie. Uh, King uh, tells the American Psychological Association that the biggest uh, threat to American democracy is white racism. And white racists uh, are the entire American people. And the American people keep saying there would be peace, but for the chaos that the white folks are causing. That's Martin Luther King Jr. He says that the halls of Congress are running wild with racism, right? And it's King who tells black folks in Marks, Mississippi, Quitman County, Mississippi, the poorest county in the United States at the time, that they, they're, they're telling themselves, they're telling white people are telling them to pull themselves up by the bootstrap. But during Reconstruction, instead of getting 40 acres and a mule, there was the Homestead Act where white people got all this free land and black people got nothing. And these are the same people telling you to pull yourselves up by your bootstrap. So King comes and starts to have, like a la Malcolm and inspired by Malcolm and people like Stokely Carmichael, a vociferous cri uh, criticism of white supremacy, which is why he shot in the face on Thursday, April 4th, 1968. And it's why um, white folks hate King at the end. So it's important, like one of the reasons why I wrote the book, I want people to understand that this country does not love people who are anti-racist and are racial justice advocates, no matter what they're telling you about King. And so they they set up a King who's soft, uh, who's milk toast, who's a paper uh, plastic saint, who's Santa Claus, a white Santa Claus as King, not even a black Santa Claus. They set him up as everybody's white Santa Claus who would hug these racists. And he's not that. He's not that. If anything, what King is doing is forcing substantive change. And he's saying, yes, he wants it nonviolently, but he's he's trying to transform and upend the existing whole entire social order. So it's important for us to understand why, why these concepts are so important. And again, I think they continue this to this day in the movement for Black Lives, this idea of radical Black citizenship and radical Black dignity. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I feel like I ran ahead a little bit myself, but uh, I think the sword and the shield, which is what the book is entitled, uh, but you you referenced it. I, I think it should be, I, I would love it if you could like, like make it even for children. Like, I think that is something that could, uh, if it could be digestible, you know, something that even children could, because I think that that narrative has long been, you know, now granted you do acknowledge in your book that Malcolm and Martin never become like probably best friends or, you know, anything no. like that. Um, but I think they well, I definitely think it would have been a friendship if they had both lived both you know, because uh, within right. the heat of the sixties, they had these different constituencies, but I think, yes, there would have been a rapprochement if they had, um, and obviously they meet at the U S Senate and they, they have plans to meet again. Yeah. Malcolm goes to Selma to visit him. And one thing I show in the book, Malcolm actually saw King both at the March on Washington, but also December 17th, 1964 in New York City, after King wins the Nobel Prize, Malcolm is sitting next to Andy Young as King is speaking. And so, um, and later talks about that speech. So there's there's definitely some more closeness than um, 
people think. And Malcolm tells Robert Penn Warren that him and King have the same goals, which is human dignity. So there's there's definitely more convergence than people imagine. So who is the sword and who is the shield at the end of the day, I guess? Yeah, at the end of the day, it's both. They're both. You know, that's why I entitled it that, because we usually think of Malcolm as a political sword and King as this nonviolent shield. And they really adopt both of those positions simultaneously. So the, the whole point of the book and that metaphor is that Malcolm is both political sword and shield uh, throughout, not just when he leaves the Nation of Islam, but throughout. Because one of the things I wanted people to see with Malcolm was what a um, sort of well-rounded person he, he, he was and is. And with King, I wanted to see King from a different lens as well, somebody who's a really muscular, robust, combative, provocative activist, which he was as well, right? And so King, we think of as usually the shield, but King says by 65, he's gonna turn nonviolence into a sword that upends and transforms the United States of America. And the King who breaks with Lyndon Johnson, no more visits or nice talk with the president. President doesn't even come to his funeral because he hates him at the end. That is the King we should embrace. That's the thing. So King is one of the most important figures, just like Malcolm, one of the most important figures, but they're both revolutionaries. They're both revolutionaries. And by revolution, we mean that we're trying to change fundamentally the relationship that people have towards each other and towards the nation state. That's what revolution is. It means that we're no longer gonna see black people as criminals who are worthy of punishment, black women as women who, who disproportionately have bad maternal outcomes uh, in contrast to their white counterparts. Uh, we're no longer going to punish and lead Black people to premature death, um, both in the society, uh, in terms of fellow citizens, but also the way in which law enforcement and different structures, schools, look at Black people. That, that's, that's what we, the problem we have now is that we're in a constant battle um, against denigration. And we see it when people talk about crime waves, when, when people talk about what we're seeing in the context of the Ukraine, African immigrants can't get out. So white supremacy is global in scope and it impacts all of us. We're seeing it with the anti-critical race theory and it's based on lies. It's based on lies and violence. And we're seeing it with voter suppression. So everybody who's uh, listening to us, you all might think, oh my gosh, what would I have done in the 60s uh, with Malcolm X and King and the Black Panthers? You're living it now. You're in the 60s, you're in it. Like you thought, your elders might've lied to you and thought you got over and because of these iPhones, you're straight. You're in it, you're in it. You know what I'm saying? You're in it. The anti-Black racism, they look upon you as Negroes and the N-word and worse, you're in it. That's why George Floyd got shot, uh, got the, the knee to the neck. That's why Breonna Taylor got shot. That's why all these Black people are dying. You are in it. That's why all these Black people are in jail right now. You're in it, okay? It's important for us to know that that we are no better off than these folks back in the day, uh, even though some of us would like to imagine we are. It's very true. I was just about to mention uh, <laughs> the anti-Blackness that really is prevalent around the world. And as you speak about, I mean, Malcolm was about engaging uh, the struggle against um, Black oppression, not just from a civil rights perspective, but as a human rights issue and on an international stage through things like that you talk about in the book, uh, the OAAU is an organization. I just, I guess I just came to really know it through the sword and the shield uh, and, and many things like that. And 
you know, viewing today as the 60s is so, it's, it's so true. Many things have not changed. They do, we still are seen um, in the, the, in the white gaze, I guess, <laughs> as, you know, Negroes, et cetera, um, less than inferior, but it's hard when you have like people like Malcolm X that were great, I think you call him like the great articulator of the black freedom struggle. Uh, you got, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, just one of the greatest orators of all time. Sort of those central people. We don't even have like behind the scenes, I feel like prominent ground workers uh, that you, or we do have them, but sometimes they're not as much at the forefront as we know. Like we think about Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, et cetera. How do we move forward without having that type of figure? Or do you argue that we do have figures like that, that we can sort of look to, to guide us and move us to the next point? Well, no, I think we have great figures. I think when one of the best things about the movement for Black Lives is this idea that all Black lives matter. We've tried to leave behind Black women in earlier historical contexts, Black queer folks, uh, trans folks, um, poor folks, HIV positive, uh, people who victims of domestic violence, and that's real. So we've made our own mistakes. You know, we've, we've at times imbi imbibed a, a kind of very reactionary patriarchy, a reactionary toxic masculinity, reactionary homophobia, queerphobia, um, anti-immigrant xenophobia. We've got problems. We're, we're just people. What's great about um, uh, this period and the movement for Black Lives is that this idea of centering the least of these within the Black community. So I would say that when you think about Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi and Patrice Cullors, uh, women like uh, Tamika Mallory, um, you know, uh, no name, so so many so many different activists, uh, uh, you know, folks in Ferguson like Tef Poe and others. I think they've done a fabulous uh, job of expanding the terrain of what is Black politics and. Black organizing and movement. And in fact, I, I'm working on a project now on anti-racism in both the United States and uh, the UK. And we see, you know, we had about 2,000 separate demonstrations here, 15 to 26 million people. The UK had hundreds of thousands of people, over 260 separate de demonstrations uh, after George Floyd. So we, we, we have to understand that we have a huge, huge, you know, opportunity. There's many challenges ahead of us. But we've got major opportunities now because by one, not just having one leader who can be picked off is important. Uh, two, um, yeah. a lot of the headway we've made is through, um, at times, Black feminist, intersectional, Black radical tradition analyses where men play a, a vital role, but women have been leaders and co-leaders and architects of that. And we have to acknowledge that. So I think we're in good stead. Um, and it's not going to, the 21st century is not going to look like Malcolm Martin, Angela Davis. It does, it's not going to look that way because the leadership is more diffuse, less hierarchical, more participatory. But in doing so, it's a lot of times more effective. Less hierarchical, more diffuse. I love that. And I, I think, you know, it is to be noted that uh, the demonstrations that we've seen, BLM demonstrations represent like the largest movement the U.S. has ever seen. So I think it's, that's worth noting as well. Yes. Uh, so just to sort of these last few moments, I do want to ask you about the third reconstruction 
uh, your book. Oh yeah. Me fall. <laughs> we'll have to uh, come back and, and do something on it. Yeah. So that, that book comes out September and uh, it's, you know, reimagining sort of racial justice in the 21st century or America's struggle for racial justice in the 21st century. But the, the real reason for writing that book and what I mean by the third reconstruction is that, you know, the first American reconstruction was right after slavery, 1865 to, I, I put it to 1898, all the way to from the end of racial slavery in the 13th Amendment to uh, the white massacre of Black folks in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. Um, and then the second reconstruction is sort of the civil rights era of the 1940s, 50s, 60s. The heroic period is from the Brown decision in 54 to King's assassination in 68. And I argue that since 2008, we're in a third reconstruction with the pivot points being Obama, um, the rise of BLM 1.0, the rise of uh, Trump and MAGA, and then BLM 2.0 and the racial political reckoning. And reconstruction has always been, when we think about Reconstructionists support our supporters since the end of slavery of multiracial democracy uh, versus redemptionists who are white supremacists. And we think about there's been multiple generations of Reconstructionists and redemptionists. So, you know, the Klan is founded in 1866, the same year that Fisk University is founded. And they're both founded in Tennessee. Fisk is founded in Nashville, and the Klan is founded in the in Pulaski, Tennessee, right? So when we think about redemptionists, redemptionists, and that's why you have the anti-CRT, they're the ones who are the advocates of the lost cause and saying black men were raped because they were, were lynched because they were raping white women. They're the ones who are the supporters of the black codes and the convict lease systems that set up mass incarceration and the racial pogroms, not just in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but in New Orleans and uh, in Memphis uh, and in uh, Hamburg, South Carolina, and in Mississippi and other places, okay? So this third Reconstruction, we're experiencing the same thing. So the Reconstructionists now are Movement for Black Lives and its, and its allies. And the Redemptionists are everything from the Republican Party, the entire Republican Party, uh, to uh, Proud Boys and white supremacist militia, former President Donald Trump, but people are in the sitting in the U.S. Senate right now, in the House of Representatives right now. Um, they're definitely tied to anti-vaxxers and white supremacy. So, you know, we're we're in that 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 dialectical, that existential battle uh, for the soul of 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 the country. And and I wanted to write this book, and it's a fairly short book, um, so that that students and young people could understand the historical context for what what we're facing yeah uh is are there any because i know you have to go but are there sort of any final words because you talk about young people a lot your professor uh, can you give us sort of any words of like hope or admonition oh absolutely you know i'm really i'm i'm an optimist and and i think that uh, even though I'm also a realist about the challenges we face, I think that young people, one of my um, young heroes is, is people like um, Dante Stewart, who wrote Shouting in the Fire. Shout out to Dante Stewart. He should, you know, everybody should be reading him. Um, Kiesi Lehman, people should be reading. Amani Perry's South to America is brilliant. People should be reading. Um, there's so many different uh, great 
work out there. My colleague Talitha LaFloria has a book, Chained in Silence, about Black women in mass incarceration. Mariam Kaba, who talks about hope being a discipline, uh, should be read. So I think that this is a great, great opportunity for all of us to find out what the story is, what our story is, what's the truth about Black history and American history, and, and think about alternative narratives and ways to share that story, whether it's through your own creative writing or, or, or arts or any kind of intervention. So you've got to be a student, but you also have to be a practitioner. And, and in that context, we can build what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called a beloved community together that's free of racial uh, and economic uh, and gender and sexuality uh, oppression and, and marginalization and death uh, and violence. Uh, so I'm very, very hopeful. Uh, we just have to do the work. You know, some of us have been rolling up our sleeves and doing this work for decades and decades. And I'm a proud long marcher, but we have to open it up for young people uh, who can take the lead and co-lead and co-architect uh, and build with us. So I'm really uh, excited about what lies ahead, but we just have to do the work. Awesome. How can we stay in touch with you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. Uh, that's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And I'm on Instagram too at um, Dr. Dr. Peniel Joseph. Uh, and um, I'm on Facebook as well. And, um, you know, the third reconstruction is available for pre-order too. So you can just Google the third reconstruction, Peniel Joseph, and it'll be right there. Awesome. This has been Black Voices on the Hill with Dr. Peniel Joseph. We'll see you all next week. Be sure to follow him and Dr. Peniel Joseph on all platforms. Follow us at Black Voices on the Hill and stay tuned right here at WBBR 93.5 every Friday at 2 p.m. Podcast releases at twos- on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Shout out to my executive producers, Mike Seitz and Grace Fairchild. Peace out, family.